This is Monkeys and Psychopaths, Episode 2, The Salesman and the Psychopath, by Joe Lipscomb and Nick Driver. Hello, good day. This is Joe Lipscomb. I have Nick Driver by my side and welcome to the Monkeys and Psychopaths podcast. Today we're going to be talking about lies and deception. And I want to start by asking you, Nick, to tell me one of the earliest lies you ever remember telling. First lie I ever remember telling. I must have been, I must have been about four or five years old. I was off playing in another room of the house and I, I hear from up the stairs my mum uh, call me. She said, Nicholas, come here. And I knew I was in trouble because she, she'd called me Nicholas. So I entered the room and she stood pointing at this uh, kind of colorful scribble on the wall in, in crayon or pen or whatever it was. And she said to me, is this you? Have you done this? And, uh, and of course I said no. Of course I said no, but the, the trouble was it was at my height and it was in my handwriting. So, you know, my mother being far more intelligent than I was, um, knew of course it was me, but I thought that somehow I could just lie my way out of it because I hadn't been caught in the act. Um, despite all the evidence suggesting otherwise. So I'd say that was my first first line, not necessarily the most intelligent, but the first. Amazing, incredible. So this this type of lie is is for you to to sort of free yourself of any punishment, assumingly. So at a very tender age, four or five you said, which is very, very young, it was instinctive for you to not tell the truth about what had happened. Um, even though I assume at that age and sort of stage of your life you hadn't been you know picked apart for too many errors in your life um, so truth has probably not you know served you terribly up until that point what do you think caused you to tell the lie why did you decide in that instance that telling a lie was more fruitful of an option than telling the truth i think the lie in that situation was the easier way out i suppose it was easier to lie and, and maintain that lie than it would have been to tell the truth and face the consequences of my actions. It's funny, we, you know, we laud honesty and transparency and vilify deception and manipulation, but there's so much more to admire in a good lie than some truth, isn't there? And, you know, your story there is a great example. Consider the variables that go into a good lie from a child's perspective, a four-year-old Nick Driver perspective. Firstly, one needs to create the lie, the, the deception. Here the deception is that, you know, somehow this, this, this mural on the wall was not caused by you, despite the fact that you were in the room and, and probably surrounded by, you know, by, um, by crayons at that point. Secondly, the teller of the lie needs to have a fairly good reading of the expectations of the receiver. For example, I would need to have a fairly good understanding of your knowledge of a subject, feelings towards it, or perspective on a topic if I'm able to successfully deceive you with regard to that subject. So if I want to tell you a successful lie about politics, I'd need to be confident on your feelings on the subject or candidate to be confident that I could convince you of my lie. And thirdly, I'd need to be able to fill numerous gaps surrounding the lie. What happened before? What happened next? What will happen next week? The cause and the effect. Lies are like a, a fictional chapter in a story that doesn't exist. Each lie births a new reality. And that is impressive, particularly for a four-year-old child. So I pose the following question to you. 
If lying is so bad and so damaging and so frowned upon and can lead to such manipulation and negative consequences, why have we been wired to be so good at it? And similarly, why are we so bad at detecting it? Why is this gray area of human nature painted out as so black and white in so many areas of society? And more importantly, how has this impacted the way we live and operate in this modern society? How has this impacted government, media, communications and more? These questions are at the heart of our broadcast today. Part 1. This is going to hurt. It was a regular morning in the year 1951. In the state of New Brunswick, just on the border between Canada and the United States, Dr. Joseph Sear received a phone call from the press. They'd read his profile in the news, how he performed surgery on almost 20 washed-up Korean soldiers aboard the Cayuga, saving the lives of each and every one. What a heroic tale, the callers insisted. Then his mother called. People are calling about your profile in the news, she explained. It says you performed surgeries on injured Koreans off the coast of North Korea. Dr. Sear was familiar with the story. Wrong Dr. Sear, he replied. Plenty of Sears out there. Easy mistake. A medical professional in the Canadian Navy, she pondered. With the same credentials as you, graduating from the same school at the same time. Seems a little coincidental. Dr. Sear checked again. To his amusement, the profile was indeed his. The troubling point, however, was that he hadn't performed any surgeries on any casualties on any naval ship off any eastern coasts. It was a case of stolen identity. An investigation ensued, and it came to pass that the hero of the Cayuga that performed between 16 and 19 surgeries on Korean war casualties was not Dr. Sear at all. In fact, he wasn't even a doctor at all. He was Waldo Damara, an old acquaintance of Dr. Sears. Damara had fancied himself a short career as a surgeon, and so had stolen the identity of Dr. Sear, copying his medical certificate and sweet-talking his way onto a naval ship in the midst of the war. On the day a rickety old boat watched up against the Cayuga, Damara was the only surgeon on board. Though he had absolutely zero medical training and experience, other than fixing up an infected toe on a fellow crewman sometime earlier, he confidently performed the surgeries, successfully, on each and every casualty, all of whom survived. Damara's story was so exciting that the ship's press office had decided to run a profile on him. The hero of the Cayuga. And within days, that story had reached the real Dr. Sear. Once the investigation had been conducted, Damara confessed, willingly. His manner was so intoxicating that Life magazine ran a profile on him. He became known as the Great Imposter. Prior to his time on the Cayuga, he had several other unqualified mini-careers too. Once he realised he was going to be found out, or had become bored, he moved on to the next thing. In 1969, Damara attended a reunion with his crewmates from the Cayuga, and despite his crimes, he was so charming and warm that he was welcomed with open arms. He died 13 years later as a reverend. What's most interesting about Damara's story? That he conned his way onto a Canadian naval ship? That he successfully managed to perform a high volume of surgeries without relevant training? That he seemingly lapped up the media attention in the aftermath? Or that he was warmly welcomed back by those he had deceived? Perhaps the result of all of them combined. Damara, when placed beside that list, is your typical psychopath. He showcased numerous psychopathic behavioural traits, a heightened sense of self-worth, superficial charm and glibness, lack of empathy, lack of long-term planning, pathological lying. Not only that, 
but his veins were so ice cold that he was able to perform surgery aboard a ship, knowing full well he had no training, was not a doctor, and was in the middle of a war zone. Much like the stories we told in episode one, Damara was helped by a superficial charm and confidence, society's ability to default to truth, and the press's eagerness to sell a great story. Part 2. Live and Let Lie Though the world fundamentally disagrees on almost everything, from what's the right way to pronounce vase, to what version of God to follow, to what's considered funny and not funny, to who should be in power, to which is the best episode of the 90s hit sitcom Friends, there's one thing that almost the entire global population generally agrees on. Lying is bad. To tell someone a lie is to wrong them. To offer mistruths is to forfeit your integrity. Time will inevitably uncover dishonesty and lies. History has no place for them, so said the former king of Cambodia. Though I would argue there's much room in history for lies. In fact, many of the most significant lies ever told occupy more valuable real estate in our psyche than other incidents. Interestingly enough, as we've discussed in episode one, lying to people is a particularly simple task. As humans, we're wired to default to truth. We naturally assume people communicating with us are doing so honestly, something which leaves us vulnerable to deception and manipulation. Whether it's something small such as, you'll get your check next week, or something bigger like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, or am I a certified medical doctor? Sure, this much we know. But what we want to cover in this episode is the other side of that relationship, the natural tendency to tell the lie, something, funnily enough, we're also wired to do. And here's our first troublesome stop. If we're wired to tell mistruths, and we're wired to believe them, but we universally accept that lying is utterly unforgivable, then what on earth happened? When in history did science and evolution have a brutal fallout with social standards and expectations? If something is so morally and ethically wrong, why are the skills to do it ingrained in us? And better yet, why are the skills to spot it not? Telling a lie is a sign of intelligence. That might not sit well with everyone, but it is true. Telling the truth is basic system one stuff. Are you hungry? No. See? Easy. But lying requires creativity. It requires motive, a reason to exist. It requires a challenge, something I need to overcome. And it requires a solution, the execution of the lie. Suddenly, lying starts to look far more complex than telling a truth. It's this simple distinction that gives us evidence that deception and lies are part of our evolutionary growth, something we developed over time in order to help us survive. Interestingly, we lie with ease, all the time. Research has shown that we're lied to between 10 and 200 times in a single day. The important element is the nature of the lie. In episode 1, we discussed the four coloured lies. White, grey, red and black. All of these are just types of communication, giving information to another. Some versions are in touch and distance of the truth, and others are worlds apart. Saying, I'm alright, when asked how you are, might not be exactly true, but it's not in the same ballpark as saying you're actually a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, is it fair to argue that, instead of seeing true and false as polar opposites, as we've been nurtured to do, we should actually see truth as one location on a spectrum of communication, where at one end is the fact of the matter, and at the extreme other is the psychopathic, manipulative, 
dream world lie that's crafted for personal gain at the cost of the receiver. But like all spectrums, there are parts that meet much closer in the middle. Thus, removing the stigma attached to lying as a concept and contextualizing what's true and false. For this to be accurate and acceptable, we have to identify where lying has its benefits and that we've developed the ability to do it for honest or critical reasons. Therefore, annihilating the idea of deception and lies being a human invention, purely selfish, purely wrong. Fortunately, for the writers of this podcast, we can once again rely on our friends, the monkeys. There are many scientific studies showcasing various examples of deception throughout the animal kingdom. One such example is the capuchin monkey. White-faced capuchins in Costa Rica reside near rivers, often smothered in thick fauna deep in the forests. Therefore, they're often surrounded by threat and risk. Thick forest regions are perfect for predators, being able to cleverly sneak up on their prey and attack unannounced. To tackle this, the capuchins work together to communicate dangers using specific sounds for specific threats. Once a single monkey raises an alarm, the others in the group will know it's time to dart. But with any environment where the use of trust is visible, abuse of trust is never far behind. And what some more senior members of the capuchin family will do is use the danger cry when no such threat exists. The smaller monkeys that have identified food will abandon their find in sheer panic, leaving the jackpot wide open to the more dominant of the group. Voila, the deception is complete. One monkey lies to another about a false threat and therefore is able to benefit from the results. This is a black lie, where the teller gains something at the cost of the receiver, what we call a very naughty lie. The ability to deceive, to creatively invent lies and mistruths, has then enabled us to advance as a species. It's how we learn to operate in a social group, managing not just our environment, but also the players in it, that makes us so intelligent. Otherwise put, it's how we manage the other folks in our tribe with all their complexity, emotions and motives that we are able to get ahead. And of course, the larger the group, the more complex those relationships become, and the more intelligent we must therefore become. Scientists, funnily enough, have found a correlation between the size of social groups and the size of the brains within those groups. Ian Leslie points out in Born Liars that monkey species that exist in larger social groups often have larger brains, suggesting that the development of the species is intrinsically linked to how good they are at working one another out, deceiving one another or manipulating others in order to get ahead. Sound familiar? We've been using these same tricks forever. Lying is very important in how we manage social situations. We've evolved to accept that deception and manipulation will enable fluidity and alignment in a group. One only need watch Liar Liar to catch a glimpse of the utter chaos we'd be plunged into if we couldn't stray from the truth. Which again raises the question, why does history frame lying so negatively? Well, the answer lies in moderation. In episode one, we discuss how Dr. Kevin Dutton surmised that psychopathy was a spectrum we all exist on. That you can't be or not be a psychopath, just that the intensity of the behaviours increases the further along the spectrum you travel. For example, if you happen to exhibit some narcissism and a lack of empathy, with a bit of superficial charm in your daily work, you might find yourself a highly successful boss or a naval surgeon. But tune those behaviours up and you might find yourself in a maximum security prison. The line between social acceptability and criminality is a fine one indeed. The same, perhaps, exists for lies and truth. 
It's not so much deception and lying that should upset us, but the nature of the lie itself, its consequences and its outcomes. If we can go through life carefully managing our mistruths and deceiving those around us for personal gain, we might find ourselves in very successful professions, with adoring partners and children that admire us. Poorly manage those lies and we could end up ruining our lives and the lives of others around us. Again, anything that lives on a spectrum of good and bad will have a threshold that can be incredibly difficult to spot. It's also worth mentioning that not all people measure the evilness of lies in the same way. Where one person may be eaten up inside every small lie, another may live comfortably with having deceived someone in a far worse way. And then to make things even more complicated, you need to assess whether or not the individual was aware of the lie they were telling in the first place. Take the press officer aboard the Cayuga that ran the profile on the wrong Dr. Seer. Or, once again, let's take the 2003 Iraqi invasion as an example. Countless media outlets published fabricated reports unchecked quotes and stories from governments in the US and UK in the build-up to and during the opening years of the war. Though the deception was conducted by government, the lies were carried untested by mainstream news titles. In the aftermath, Australian filmmaker and former war correspondent John Pilger directed the film The War You Don't See. In it, he interviews numerous media personalities that have broadcast mistruths and played a crucial role in spreading incorrect information. Some journalists apologised, others defended their stories, some claimed they were not at fault at all. What the BBC, though, have a duty to do is to report what governments and their representatives are saying, which we, of course, did. We were just reporting quite legitimately the claims that people at the time were making. They weren't legitimate claims, though. They were in the mouths of legitimate leaders, though, and therefore we had a duty to report that. But those leaders, both of them you mentioned, Blair and Bush, have long been discredited. Perhaps the lack of access to the truth is a fair assessment. But the question then becomes, why did one of the most important news sources in the Western world broadcast news without having had access to the truth? Did it take the government on its word? Was it looking for an exciting story? Were its heads trying to sway its audiences too? Well, evidence points to all scenarios and more. Take this from Paul H. Weaver, a former political scientist at Harvard, a fortune journalist and PR guy at Ford Motor Company, in his 1994 book, News and the Culture of Lying, How Journalism Really Works. It's already pretty damning, to be honest. Weaver argues that governments and news media are equal partners in creating and poorly governing crises. He says that mutual manipulation and myth-making is needed for both entities to exist. News media need to dramatise crises and governments need to appear to be responding to crises. But that largely, most crises are not in fact crises at all. They're joint fabrications. This results in government officials not being able to govern properly and the news media simply not being able to tell people what is factually accurate or true. So it's really a less sympathetic verdict at least on media that others have given, less about the struggles of being able to find truth and more about the actual intent of ignoring it. To bring a bit of weight to this argument, let's look at perhaps the only Western journalists that didn't horribly fail in reporting the facts in the build-up to the Iraqi war and see what became of them. Well, the short answer is not much. Between the events on 9-11 and the declaration of war in Iraq in 2003, a group of journalists set about doing exactly what they were supposed to do, critique 
investigate, confirm, and report. Jonathan Landy, Warren Strobel, John Walcott, and Joe Galloway were working for the Knight Ridder at its bureau in Washington, D.C., when rumors started to leak from the White House of possible WMDs in Iraq and Saddam Hussein's plans to build a potential arsenal of nuclear weapons. This was a group of highly experienced journalists that had worked in the political sphere for many years, covering administrations, dealing with policy, CIA, defense, security, and the like. They had a number of trusted, high-profile sources in the capital they had built over a number of years, and they were therefore more able to look at assertions coming from the administration and being published by the media and think, does that look right? That doesn't quite sound right to me. So throughout the 18th month period, they began working closely with their sources to confirm or debunk the statements and comments that were being made by both the administration and media. Within that time, they published a number of damning stories that stood in contrast to what Bush and his administration were saying and therefore what a large number of media were reporting. Headlines such as, Lack of hard evidence of Iraqi weapons worries top US officials in September 2002. And Iraq has been unable to get materials needed for nuclear bomb, experts say. Or CIA reports reveals analysts split over extent of Iraqi nuclear threat. And some in Bush administration have misgivings about Iraqi policy, all published in October 2002. Though today this group of journalists is lauded as the group that got Iraq right, so says the HuffPost interview with the journalist in 2011. At the time, they weren't taken seriously at all. Worse still, many high-profile newspapers didn't even publish the stories. In fact, even Knight Ridder-owned newspapers turned down the stories or buried them as nibs in the depths of their papers. Any hint, it seemed, of evidence that questioned the administration's rationale for going to war was simply ignored. Of course, there's more to this from a mass perspective, than just people not wanting an alternative point of view. That would be unfair. As we know, in herd mentality, once a story begins to gain momentum, it can be hard to halt. And with respect to the public in the Western world, they were being inundated with stories connecting 9-11 and Iraq and Saddam Hussein's nuclear program. So much so, that at the turn of the decade, some 40% of Americans still believed Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Truth, again, did not trump story. For many, as we stated in episode one, it was merely a gatecrasher. But with that in mind, why was truth not the dominant voice in the first place? Why did more journalists not do their job properly? Walcott, in his Huffington Post interview in 2011, stated the following. There wasn't any reporting in the rest of the press corps. There was stenography. The administrator would make an assertion. People would make an assertion. People would write it down as if it were true and put it in the newspaper or on television. Whether or not the majority of journalists felt what they were hearing from Bush, Cheney, Rice, Powell was in fact true, or whether they were trying to break news quickly, maintain their access to White House staff, or take the more dramatic route that would be sure to sell papers, is not something the authors of this podcast are privy to. Walcott, on the other hand, was very clear about his and his colleagues' approach to the situation, stating... I think we approached this by asking the question every time the administration made an allegation, is this true? Is this true is the basic question any journalist must ask any time a government, any government, makes an assertion. End quote. Today, the only satisfaction these journalists have is that they can sleep at night knowing they were on the right side of history, 
as well as being stars in a somewhat decent movie about their tribulations, featuring Rob Rayner and Woody Howson, among others. Which isn't justice, but it's still pretty cool. In episode one, we discussed how facts gatecrash our ideals, our preferred version of reality. We quote an ancient Greek saying, with wisdom comes pain. Is the reporting of the Iraqi war another example of that? Was it merely story overpowering the collective force of fact? To find out, we need to travel even further back in time to one of journalism's most glorified sons, Mr. Joseph Pulitzer. Born in Hungary in 1847, the Jewish immigrant made his way to the United States of America. A refined, twisted moustache of the time sat below a strong nose that supported a pair of thin-rimmed specks. Pulitzer was a fairly handsome man. He didn't look too dissimilar to the co-host of this podcast. In 1883, after several successful runs in American newspapers around the country, he found himself in New York City, where he purchased The World, a failing city newspaper. In no time, Pulitzer had transformed the world and the printing press as a whole. Thanks to his careful consideration and inventiveness, newspapers became one of the most desired, daily must-haves of modern life in America. Pulitzer, like any great outlier, benefited massively from timing. His upheaval of the newspaper industry came at a time when more and more people were flocking to New York. The city was growing and more people were forced into commuting around on a daily basis. They were eager to learn about the city, its influential characters, its culture, its humor, its ways and means, and Pulitzer provided all of it on the way to work. He introduced loud headlines, sensational grammar and emphasis, colorful pictures and illustrations to bring stories to life. Having successfully sold his stake at a number of papers prior to his arrival in New York, he was every bit a businessman as he was a journalist. And it was this combination that made newspapers particularly his, so popular. It had story, character, plot, twists. Gone were the days of reporting fact by fact what had happened. Like minutes of a meeting, the old way of reporting was undesirable, ineffective, dull, boring. Pulitzer made news sexy. He combined our natural lust for narrative and drama and blended it wonderfully with real life affairs. The typeface grew in size. The pictures got more provocative the stories more driven towards entertainment, and the competition fiercer. People were not just informing themselves of events, they were able to use the paper as a guide to good and evil, right and wrong. They were able to pick sides by more easily identifying villains and heroes. Pulitzer had to divide his time between being a dedicated reporter and a businessman, and here lies the interesting turn in fortune for modern journalism. For a newspaper to be successful, like any business, it had to understand the tricks of the trade and engage in some one-upmanship. It had to be more entertaining, more sensational, more compelling than its competitor. It had to be its own propagandist. It had to learn how to PR itself. This gave rise to what's known as yellow journalism. You can still see this in today's tabloids. Pick up any tabloid newspaper and you'll see a self-congratulatory story, an exclusive Someone told the sun and the moon something they would not tell anyone else. Suddenly, Pulitzer found himself in a popularity war with William Rudolph Hearst. And that rivalry was perhaps most tense during the build-up to the American-Spanish War of 1898. Much like the war in Iraq, the American-Spanish War was fueled by sensationalized media. Large, dramatic headlines, 
agenda-soaked stories and opinions dressed as news, questions and statements designed to divide opinions and kettle readers into a distinctive group. Pulitzer was a master. Bait hooked not with what you like, but what the fish likes. The debate over how much influence this media war had on actual war between the Spanish and Americans remains largely unsolved. But many comparisons can be made between 1898 and 2003. To win these wars, news needed to be more exciting and gripping than ever. The merging of fact and entertainment needed to be more seamless, more natural, and more rewarding. Take this quote from Edwin Diamond's book, Behind the Times. It was said of Hearst that he wanted New York American readers to look at page one and say, gee whiz, to turn to page two and exclaim, holy Moses, and then at page three shout, God Almighty. Not all news is going to achieve that. As the classic saying goes, dog bites man isn't news. Man bites dog is. Hidden in that simple proverb is the admission that it's not always fact and truth that makes news, but sensationalism and surprise. And those two things aren't always readily available. Was it at this point in time that pure fact and journalism parted ways? Part 3. Nothing could be fewer from the truth. Lies are tricky business. We tell them often without noticing. We're wired to deceive and manipulate. We are wired to default to truth in uncertain circumstances. We fundamentally condemn lies, but we use them to teach lessons to our children. We hate when politicians lie, but forgive when our favorite role models lie. It's a mucky, mucky game. To make things even more complicated, we're actually wired to lie to ourselves too. These lies find us in the form of self-affirmation, convincing ourselves that we are immeasurably more able than we actually are in myriad areas of our lives, convincing ourselves that we are better, more capable, more attractive, smarter, sharper, more unique than others, that we can write better podcasts than others. If we don't see ourselves this way, scientists surmised, we will almost completely stop dead in the street and cease to be able to function. Otherwise put, if we don't believe we're better than we actually are, we might all just give up and go home. It's these psychological nuances that keep us so susceptible to deception too, because a fake doctor might fool one naval commander, but not the naval commander of the Cayuga. He's better than the average. He's sharper, he's better equipped. And the government might fool some journalists, but not the journalists that publish the stories on Iraq, because those are the best journalists. Those are the journalists that can spot a dodgy story, it's so often our misplaced sense of excellence that sets us up for failure. 93% of American drivers believe they're better than the average driver. 94% of professors rated themselves above their peers. So even if you can fool yourself, you cannot fool maths. Someone is telling a lie. In this podcast series, we're exploring how dark lies and inaccurate stories can have incredibly significant consequences on individuals and the masses and how some of those have shaped the course of history. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of the lies we're told are not that significant. Strangers lie to strangers three times in the first 10 minutes of conversation. Few of those one would assume are damaging. Others can be. It's said that the more we know about a subject, the more likely we are to be duped by it. Perhaps this points to our self-affirmation. Perhaps I'd be fooled in subjects I know little of, but not this. This is my area of expertise. There's no way I wouldn't spot a lie here.
1938, an aircraft pulled up at what was Heston Airport in West London to jubilant cheers from an eager crowd. From the plane stepped then-British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Gaunt, thin, and battling cancer, Chamberlain emerged waving a piece of paper he believed would be one of his most significant achievements at a time when he needed it most, and what would also become one of the most famous pieces of paper in Western history. People cheered, and members of the press snapped their cameras as Chamberlain explained that the paper he held in his hand was a peace agreement between Britain and Germany, and that it contained the signatures of both Chamberlain and Herr Hitler, the German Chancellor. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. In the clip, you can feel Chamberlain's excitement as he reads from the paper. The statement confirms, promises even, that Europe will not go to war. This moment followed weeks of negotiations with the German Chancellor, one of the most dogged and toughest negotiators and characters in history. Chamberlain, on the other hand, could barely compete. He was a nervous and inexperienced flyer with a crippling disease. Perhaps he was in no good state to even be at the table with such people. Alas, here he was, standing in Britain with confirmation of his success. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep, he later said at Downing Street. The trouble was, Hitler had lied. The following year, he invaded Poland, and Europe had been plunged into a long, bloody war. Today, it seems almost unthinkable that several government officials would spend hours with a man like Hitler and believe he had no interest in going to war and no interest in further growing Germany's political and geographic influence. That he would sign a peace agreement and stay true to his word. But at the time, with those people, in those meetings, they did. Perhaps this lie was aided by Chamberlain's desperate desire to find good news, for a victory, for a reason to be hailed a hero. His self-affirmation was telling him that he was the man that had negotiated peace for Europe. He wanted to believe it, and he did and it cost him and the rest of Europe and the world dearly. Hitler had influenced Chamberlain just the way he wanted. So what can we surmise from this journey through lies and mistruths? From the teachings of the primates, to the con artists, to the president of the United States, to journalists and beyond. Firstly, it's clear that not all lies are created equal, and some told make the world a better place, and some make the world a far worse place. Interestingly, the institutions that demand truth are often the ones that find it so hard to be truthful. Perhaps this is because human nature demands a level of deception in order to function. 
Therefore, similar to psychopathy, deception sits on a spectrum where one side is purely selfish and evil and the other is altruistic and good. Unfortunately, institutions that attempt to publicly remove that spectrum and replace it with two clear sides with an obvious threshold often find themselves at the center of controversy. Government, the legal system, media, these are institutions that try to position truth and lie as good and evil, while operating behind the scenes in the same ways as the rest of us, dealing out whatever level of deception they deem necessary to reach their goals. What we do know is that deception, manipulation and mistruth is and always has been a part of human nature. We have evolved to be good at it, to twist and spin to get what we want, and combined with our ability to tell compelling stories, we can often shape the future with a little creativity. Perhaps condemning lies is just another way of shaping perceptions in our favor. The truth is, without them, stories would be dull, Santa Claus wouldn't exist, and the shifts of power would look spectacularly different.